hppodcraft.com. Heather Lay is the dearest doctor that ever was, and his invariable prescription to all his patients is lie low, go slow, and keep cool. He says that more men are killed by overwork than the importance of this world justifies. He maintains that overwork slew Panze, who died under his hands about three years ago. He has, of course, the right to speak authoritatively. And he laughs at my theory that there was a crack in Panze's head, and a little bit of the dark world came through and pressed him to death. Panze went off the handle, says Heatherley, after the stimulus of a long leave at home. He may or he may not have behaved like a blackguard to Mrs. Keith Wessington. My notion is that the work of the Catabuni settlement ran him off his legs, and that he took to brooding and making much of an ordinary P&O flirtation. He certainly was engaged to Miss Mannering, and she certainly broke off the engagement. Then he took a feverish chill and all that nonsense about ghosts developed. Overwork started his illness, kept it alight, and killed him, poor devil. That was a paragraph from the beginning of Rudyard Kipling's The Phantom Rickshaw, a story that H.P. Lovecraft liked a lot, and that might be the reason that we are talking about it today on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. Here at HPPodcraft.com, I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Laggy. And this is our uh, free show for the month. Woo! We're so glad to be back after a week off. We needed a week off after the pork of July. I really needed to wash my clothes. <laughs> yeah, I needed to. Get the... that bacon smell out. You know what? Even though we tackled ghosts during Phantasme, Mm-hmm. You know, what do ghosts do? They have one defining characteristic. They go through walls? They come back. Oh, right. They return. Right. They return, yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to announce that we are now in August, the return of Phantasme. <laughs> That's what I'm calling it. Because we're going to do some ghost stories. Okay, I'm done with that. Let's make that happen. Sweet, let's kick it off. We've got advertisers this month. Let's hear about them. We've got a book called The Stars Were Right by K.M. Alexander. Stars Were Right by K.M. Alexander. It's a Lovecraftian urban fantasy thriller. It's been getting really great reviews on Goodreads and on Amazon. We'll link out so you can check those out. It's available from Amazon and Barnes & Noble in paperback or in ebooks. Basically, anywhere you can get ebooks. The webpage is called thestarswerewrite.com, where the prologue is available for free to read. Yeah. Uh, the sequel is due out this year and will be called Old Broken Road. Here's some of the review quotes. A gritty adventure through a city rich with life and death in the style of a tale told over some cheap whiskey at a dusty dive bar on the outskirts of a bizarre Lovecraftian town. The Stars Were Right by K.M. Alexander. Recommend that you pick it up. We'll link out to it. You can get it from anywhere you like to buy books. But that is not the only fantastic product we want to talk to you about. We've got another advertiser. We sure do. It is called the Cthulhu Talking Board Whispers from Relay Ouija. <laughs> That's right. It's <laughs> basically, I mean, it's a Ouija board with a beautiful illustration of Cthulhu on it. It's limited edition, sculpted and hand-painted planchette. You got to get beautiful. it. Yeah, you got to check it out. But more importantly, you can use it to speak with Cthulhu himself. That's right. You can get on that Ouija, direct connection. And then you could find out which girls have crushes on you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can use it for all the normal stuff you'd use a Ouija board for. <laughs> does Jimmy like me? <laughs> Cthulhu says he kind of does. <laughs> but C- no, seriously, Cthulhu this- checks the box, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> 
This thing is really beautiful though. I'm gonna contribute because I, it's, it's a Kickstarter and if you pledge some dough, you can actually have this thing in your hot little hands and it's pretty impressive. I know a few people out there are kind of Ouija collectors. I think this is an excellent one to have in your collection. Yeah, and this is from CthulhuProject.com. They make all sorts of great collector products for Lovecraftian folks. They have their own shop at CthulhuProject.com, but this is going to be a Kickstarter. It's active right now. So if you go to Kickstarter, type in Cthulhu Talking Board, it will take you right there. And if that's too confusing, you can go to our show notes and click on a link. Yeah. Now to the story. So that paragraph we heard in the beginning, by the way, was read by Jeff C. Carter, making his debut on the show, but he's been my friend for a while. He lives here in Venice. Jeff is a, he's a fiction writer. He's written lots of short stories in the mythos tradition. You can find some of his work in anthologies, Tales from the Bell Club, Science Gone Mad. Right now he's working on, I believe, a steampunk uh, role-playing game thing. So I'll put, I'll put up a link to his site. He's a really cool guy. Thanks, Jeff, for reading for us. Thank you, man. On with the story. It's set in India where Kipling spent a lot of his life. Yeah, I was doing a little reading about that. Um, and we talked about his experiences in India before when we covered uh, Mark of the Beast. That was the other mm -hmm. Kipling we did, right? But he was born there, spent some time in England in his youth, and then returned at 16. And, and as far as we know, the narrator in the opening is Kipling himself. I mean, yes. I would guess. But this yeah. whole piece is, before that paragraph we heard, he introduces the whole piece by saying that the great thing about being English in India is it's got this great knowability. You can get to know all of the other English in the country because there's so few of them. And as a result, when you travel, everybody kind of stays with everybody. Sort of an open door policy amongst the people, amongst the English in that country. Right. He gives a short example. It's almost a short story within this short story because it doesn't get brought up again. And I no. just was kind of curious what your opinion of it was because it's a paragraph about one guy who was supposed to stay with a friend for just two nights as he was traveling but mm -hmm. then he got sick and he wound up staying there for six weeks totally upset his friend's household his work however that friend to this day continues to feel responsible for the guy and sends his kids gifts every year and that paragraph concludes with this sentence it is the same everywhere the men who do not take the trouble to conceal from you their opinion that you are an incompetent ass and the women who blacken your character and misunderstand your wife's amusements will work themselves to the bone in your behalf if you fall sick or into serious trouble. What did you what did you think about that? No, I understand why that's there now that we've done our research on the story and gone over it. But when I was initially reading it, it really threw me off. And it kind of made it hard for me to get into this because I didn't understand what was going on and how the characters in this story related to it. Sure, I had that problem too. Because really what he's doing is he's saying, here's one example of English people traveling together. And then yeah. our story is actually a whole other example. And that's it. That's all it is. It's that type of thing where one person is going to help another person just because he's an Englishman living in India. He talks about this English doctor, his name's Heatherly. Heatherly tried to treat this guy called Pansy, who the doctors said died of overwork. Now, Pansy's this guy that the story is actually about. It's his story that we're getting into. And what did you think about that notion in the paragraph, that more men are killed by overwork than the importance of this world justifies? I thought that's pretty good. Yeah, it's very appealing philosophy. I think I might want to go see this doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Look here, young man, stop working so much. Okay. But just think about all the people that were put to work as slaves, building temples, and how important is that temple? Egyptian guy who... All these people died from overwork because you wanted a mausoleum. I'm thinking more in terms of like, and I, I'm sure a lot of people share this characteristic. When I'm out and doing things that are of a leisure, you know, nature, I feel really guilty. And it's hard to have fun because I feel like I should be working. Yeah. Or doing something productive for my career or whatever. It would yeah. be nice to have a note from a doctor that said, you know, go to the movies. <laughs> in, that, in that regard, I get it and I appreciate it. But I think I, I felt like it was a much weightier comment. 
I think you're right. I was just kind of trying to make it be about myself because I want to go to the movies. <laughs> what about Pansy? What's, what's he like? They, he calls him a blackguard, but I think what I would call him is a player. Yeah. It seems like, well, this is what happened. He had an affair with this woman called Mrs. Keith Wessington. Mm-hmm. Agnes is her first name. And he dumped her and got engaged to this woman called Miss Mannering. Now, she broke off the engagement. We don't know why. Then he went a little nuts and died. No real details at this point in the story. So this is just the, kind of the basics that we get. Now, Kipling doesn't, or whoever this narrator is, doesn't really think it was overwork that killed Pansy. No. Pansy, when he was ill and under the care of the doctors, the narrator suggested that he write an account of what happened to him to kind of help him sort his thoughts and ease his troubled mind. Mm-hmm. So Pansy wrote this manuscript, seemed to get a little bit better. He was reassigned to work at one point, but then he just died. So he never even made it back to work. Most of the story that we're going to read from this point on is his actual manuscript from 1885. Right. This is the thing he wrote while he was kind of nuts. So he starts off the tale. Uh, now, it's a typical kind of ghost story sort of way. He says, I, I'm writing. I'm suffering from a malady. Is it all in my mind or is it something more? You're not going to believe this story, but I'm going to write you exactly as I remember it happening. Two months ago, I should have scouted as mad or drunk the man who had dared tell me the like. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I myself would think I was crazy if I heard what I'm about to tell you. And you know what, dude? This whole story is kind of by the number. It is. And like I predicted how it was going to go and it totally went that way. However, Kipling is such an awesome writer that I was completely riveted the whole time. Me too. And I do think that there's some next level stuff he pulls, though. Yeah. Which we're actually we're about to talk about right here. This is three years ago. He was on a journey to India from England and he met this woman, Agnes Wessington is her name, and she was the wife of an officer. They struck up a kind of love affair. They don't go into too much detail about how involved their relationship was, but I like to think it was really dirty. Yeah. (laughs) When they got to India, they went their separate ways. Yeah, he had been in England on leave. I found it interesting that he met her on the way from Gravesend to Bombay. Oh, I see. It has to be intentional that this woman he's going to send to her grave, that's where they strike up their relationship. But he also says, in describing this affair, it does not in the least concern you to know what manner of woman she was. Be content with the knowledge that ere the voyage had ended, both she and I were desperately and unreasoningly in love with one another. And I actually think having some idea of the woman she was would unravel a lot of things in this story for me. And the fact that he's so forceful about not telling you, maybe I'm taking too much away from it, but it implies to me when I was reading it again that there's some shame there. Like if she was a strong woman, he would tell you that. Maybe the reason that he's saying it doesn't concern you to know what manner of woman she was is because maybe she was really impressionable. Maybe she was weak and he kind of took advantage of her. And she's a married woman. Yeah. If he were to kind of have played her, like you were saying, to get her into this affair, I mean, he's, he's breaking a home. And if he was the one that kind of manipulated her into it, that would really play into why he feels so guilty about rejecting her. Right, right. So I just think there's something to decode in that line there. Again, it's this writing, man. It's just. It's awesome. There's so much to it. Did you say it on the podcast? or I don't remember if we were talking about it in conversation where people complain about, oh, this one writer stole my idea. You can give 13 writers the exact same idea and then Mm -hmm. you will get 13 different stories. Absolutely. Yeah. Somebody sometimes will say, oh, Lovecraft ripped that off or we're not seeing anything mean because he took it and then he did his own thing with it. That was amazing. Yeah. There's There's only so many stories. Yeah. We watch the same ones over and over. I mean, how many superhero stories do you really need to see? I know. (laughs) But they're all told in interesting ways, and that's why you go see them. Back to the story. They landed in Bombay. They went their separate ways. Four months later, they both ended up in Simla. I don't know if I pronounced that right. It's Shimla now, uh, and there's an H in it now. It's in northern India, but it did used to be Simla. I don't know if they pronounced it as Shimla back then. 
Right. I, I'm not sure, but I would say Shimla. There's a great curry place in Keithley called Shimla Spice. Mm. Highly recommend it. Now, Shimla, it was the summer capital of British India at the time. Oh, okay. So the viceroy and his government would move there for six months. Kipling started visiting Shimla in the summer of 1883 with his family, and they went yearly after that, and he absolutely loved it. He said, my month's leave at Shimla was pure joy. Every golden hour counted. In my reread, now, I, I wasn't really thinking about the author much, but I looked up when this was published. It was 1888 was the book, The Phantom Rickshaw and Other Eerie Tales came out. Right. But this story was actually published in Quartet, the Christmas annual of the Civil and Military Gazette for 1885. Mm-hmm. And it also included four stories, or I'm sorry, it included four stories by Kipling and then some prose and verse by his parents and his sister. Kipling was 19. When this was he published. was 19 years old he was when he wrote 19 this? 19 years old. Uh, he was probably younger when he wrote this. That is insane. Right. He was a teenager when he wrote this story. Now, that completely influenced my rereading of it. I was thinking of the characters as these older kind of sophisticated people, but I started processing it through like teenage emotions. Insanely impressive. However, I think yeah. that being a 19-year-old in the late 19th century, you were probably a lot more mature. <laughs> I would agree, yeah. You probably have way more responsibilities and you're dealing with a lot more stuff. Than- yeah, absolutely. And he was born in India and he lived there till he was like five. And then as was custom, they sent him to England to be fostered by another family Yeah, because they were still in India. So he had years where he lived over there and had a really rough time of it. He was really neglected and kind of, it didn't go well for him. <laughs> and so when he came back, by that time, you could tell there's a certain maturity. I mean, he's had a time on his own to grow up Yeah. by this point. So as you say, it's impressive, but uh, you're probably right. Back to the story. Pansy and Mrs. Wessington spend their leave together in, in Simla. And by the end, he hates her. <laughs> Yeah. Like, and he's hold her up front. He was brutal about it. I attempt no excuse. I make no apology. Mrs. Wessington had given up much for my sake and was prepared to give up all. From my own lips in August 1882, she learned that I was sick of her presence, tired of her company, and weary of the sound of her voice. Ninety-nine women out of a hundred would have wearied of me as I wearied of them. 75 of that number would have promptly avenged themselves by active and obtrusive flirtation with other men. Mrs. Wessington was the hundredth. On her, neither my openly expressed aversion nor the cutting brutalities with which I garnished our interviews had the least effect. Man, he sounds so angry. (laughs) Yeah. Now, her response, what he's talking about, she just says, Jack, darling, I'm sure it was all a mistake, a hideous mistake. We'll be good friends again someday. Please forgive me, Jack, dear. (laughs) I threw a little echo effect on it when you said that. I just wanted to make it creepier. There's a really cool line here that I like. You know, he knows he's being a jerk. Yeah. And it's almost that he gets angry with her because she's taken it like a whipped animal. I was the offender, and I knew it. That knowledge transformed my pity into passive endurance, and eventually into blind hate. The same instinct, I suppose, which prompts a man to savagely stamp on the spider he has but half killed. can't believe he's 19. (laughs) So a year later, he's broken it off. He meets her again, still can't stand her. She still feels it's a mistake. He won't have it. He doesn't want anything to do with her. Oh, he hates her. He says she with her monotonous face and timid attempts at reconciliation. (laughs) Her monotonous face. So brutal. Yeah. He does notice, however, she's getting thinner and more sickly. Over the next few months, he meets her again the following year. Now, this is a year ago from the writing, Mm -hmm. and she was still making the same appeal to him. 
but now he's courting this lady, uh, Kitty Mannering. When he, he sees her, when he, last he sees uh, Mrs. Wessington, Agnes, she's sitting in this rickshaw. And mm-hmm. you're like, okay, I know where this is going. Right. And told her he was engaged. Yeah, she's heard about it. She's like, oh, so I hear you're engaged, Jack, dear. And right into it. I'm sure it's all a mistake, a hideous mistake. We shall be as good <laughs> friends someday, Jack, as we ever were, you know? And he's just like, ah! You can't stand it. And he tells her, screw off. He says some really, really mean stuff to her. She takes off the rickshaw, but she she finally breaks down and cries. Yeah. Like, like yeah. she's accepted this fact that he is he's not taking her back. And that's sort of the seminal moment because when she breaks down, he leaves thinking, oh, maybe I was a little rough on her. And then she turns the rickshaw around, is coming back for him, and he just takes off. He's get away from her as fast as he can. Yeah. And it's like that's the moment that, that dooms him. You were saying that it, you can't think of anything less scary than a rickshaw. <laughs> Rickshaws are just – they're funny, man. It's like <laughs> They are. It's like a guy pulling another dude around, and it's just – you know, but, I just think of the rickshaws at Comic-Con. You remember? Uh, they, oh, sure. The bicycle the Bicycle rickshaws, rickshaws yeah. yeah. doesn't seem scary to me. Well, I, what surprised me when I looked up, first of all, I was just, it's in the title of the story. It says the Phantom Rickshaw and there's an apostrophe before the rickshaw, which suggests that it's short for something. Yeah. I didn't know what that meant. So I looked it up. It, it, the rickshaw was invented in Japan. It originates from the Japanese word jinrikisha, which I'm probably mispronouncing but jin rikisha so that's what it's shortened from jin meaning human ricky meaning power sha meaning vehicle so it's human powered vehicle but it's fairly new tech yeah uh at that time yeah yeah, surprised me maybe because the availability of uh manufactured wheels or something like that but around 1880 you know just a less than a decade before the story came out rickshaws were just starting to appear in india and they were first actually introduced in Chimla by a guy named Reverend J. Fordyce. So at that time, yeah. it would have been kind of a new uh, vehicle on the scene. Modern technology. Well, it seems to me like it would be as, I mean, you put a person in a cart and you drag them around. I mean, it seems like that's a wheelbarrow, right? Like it should have been around <laughs> for all time. But I guess the specific type of rickshaw that she's being carted around in right. is very gorgeous. And there's multiple guys. Even describes them that they're in black and white liveries which is, you know, uniforms. It's a yellow paneled rickshaw. And they're called jampanis. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but it's how he refers to the sort of these low-class guys who are dragging her around. I looked that up and it was mostly cited in Kipling's work. I'm sure it was a bit of slang, but I wonder if that's um, a bastardization of Japanese. Could be. A week later, Agnes dies and Pansy is happy about it. She's not around to bug him anymore and he doesn't give her a second thought. So he's out with his fiance, uh, Kitty, and they pick up some rings. Everything's happy. They're out riding on their horses. That's something they do a lot in this. Pansy and his and his lady, they have their own horses. They, they get out around and they do this kind of loop around town where they ride together and flirt and look cute. So I says to Kitty, who are those guys with now? Look, they're over there because they're Mrs. Wessington's old rickshaw guys. And that's her rickshaw. She goes, what? What are you talking about? And he's like, whoa, look out. You're going to. And she rides right through the rickshaw. It's an apparition. It's not really there. He freaks out. Oh, what, 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 what? And as that happens... He hears Mrs. Wessington. There's no mistake. He hears her say, Jack, darling, it's some hideous mistake. Please forgive me. Let's be friends again. So, whoa, it's the ghost. Kitty doesn't see the apparition. Nobody else sees it. It's it's only shown to him. Kitty just sees him freaking out about it. And Mm -hmm. she comes to him and he's sort of a little catatonic. And he rolls off of his horse, runs into a cafe and gets some brandy. And he does a really odd thing there. It's like he engages this group of strangers. Yeah. And starts talking to him all crazy and joking and like getting into things and like laughing with him and stuff. Which is really weird. And Kitty is standing outside going, Jack, what's the problem? He goes, oh, well, uh, you know, I'm feeling kind of faint and I got to go. And he just bails. 
I did a little reading. There's this book called um, The Unforgiving Minute, A Life of Rudyard Kipling by a fellow mm -hmm. named Harry Ricketts. Now, I just looked at selections from this book on the uh, Kipling Society's website, which we can link out to. Sure. But on the site, it said, Ricketts sees this story as expressing some of Kipling's feeling of being abandoned and haunted by Flo Gerard, or Gerard, who had rejected him. Ricketts notes that in Something of Myself, Kipling refers to the Phantom Rickshaw as one of the first fruits of his personal demon, the compelling force outside himself which influenced his most deeply felt writing. Kipling says of the story himself, Some of it was weak, much was bad and out of key, but it was my first serious attempt to think in another man's skin. So that quote got me thinking because this girl Flo was Kipling's first love. He, he, was, he met her in England during those rough years when he was mm -hmm. being fostered. And just immediately sick to his stomach in love with her. Yeah. And I know that they split. He went back to India. Later, after the story was written, she showed up in India again and again flat out rejected him. It's not happening. Mm -hmm. And that rejection really influenced his writing for years to come. I think he might have even written a whole novel about this. I felt like him saying I was trying to think in another man's skin is Kipling. And, and not that that always has to be about the author. But I think Kipling is Mrs. Wessington. He's the Phantom Rickshaw. Yeah. And he's trying to see it from the other perspective. That could be. I, I'm just still freaking out about the fact that he was 19, possibly 18 <laughs> years old when he wrote this. I, I see the story when I was thinking about it in those teenage terms. You know how rough breakups are. And um, certainly I at that age, you know, there were girls who liked me that I I didn't like them. And lots of them. And they'd keep trying and keep trying and keep trying to keep trying, you know. But then I've been on the flip of it, too, where you're embarrassing yourself because, you know, maybe you got dumped and you just won't believe it. Mm -hmm. You know, so you keep coming after the person and, you know, you pretty soon you become that. And I'm like, here's this guy still moping around. And it's like you feel you kind of hate yourself mm -hmm. because of that obsession. Yeah. And it seems like this story really kind of expresses that in a way. There's a lot to it. I mean, it seems like there's the, the emotional experiences that one would have to go to to be able to write about this. It doesn't seem like it was an 18 year old to me or at least yeah. he must have done some serious living <laughs> before then goes back to his hotel where he's staying he goes over in his mind he tries to think of a reasonable explanation he's heard of ghosts but then he's thinking like well wait a minute a ghost of a rickshaw and what about her footmen the guys that are pulling her around what she's got ghost footmen the ghost has ghost footmen pull like that's ridiculous it doesn't make any sense kind of eases him a little bit the next day he sees kitty apologizes uh, for his behavior she accepts then they go on a nice ride together but out in the middle of nowhere, he sees the rickshaw again, and he thinks, okay, now Kitty has to see it. But then she goes, isn't this beautiful? Not a soul in sight. And he goes, oh, crap. <laughs> yeah. Kitty takes off, and he follows behind her, and he sees her running straight for that rickshaw. And then he hears Agnes again. She goes through the rickshaw, and he rides through it as well. But he goes fast. He's trying to outrun the ghost. He's visibly shaken and freaked out on the return on their, on their way back. So he comes back into town and he splits up with her. They're going to meet up again for dinner. On his way out to dinner that night, he overhears some guys talking and they mention that the guy's wife was going to buy old Agnes's rickshaw, but it got destroyed mm -hmm. because it's bad luck to have a dead person's rickshaw for some reason. I don't know whatever that was. Right. And strangely enough, the brothers that used to work for her also died of cholera. <laughs> so he goes, oh no, they are dead. They're dead. The rickshaw was destroyed. I thought that was awesome drive-by exposition, by the yeah. way, that he just overheard that. <laughs> it was, yeah. <laughs> if this was in a um, television show or a movie, he would have been in a bar and that would have been on television because that's how they do it now. <laughs> I see drive-by exposition all the time. They did it in Breaking Bad. They had some drive-by exposition right at the yeah. end. 
Maybe. I'll just go into this bar here. What's that on TV? Completely relevant to the storyline that's going to tip me to my next course of action. Aha. <laughs> yeah. There it is on the news. So this kind of makes Pansy laugh a little bit because he kind of thinks about, okay, wait a minute. So these ghosts still work for her in the ghostly world? How much time do they get off? You know, how much are they right. paid? <laughs> you know, what are their hours? What's going on? Where do they go when they're not working for her? But it kind of makes him laugh in sort of an insane kind of way. Sure. And as he heads up the road, he sees he sees the rickshaw again. So he's laughing and he approaches the rickshaw and he decides that he is going to go talk to her. So he starts saying something. He doesn't remember what he said to her. He remembers some guys coming up to him, like right as he's done talking to her. They go, are you OK, buddy? And he goes, uh, uh, and he just pretends that he's really drunk. Yeah. <laughs> and they they help him home. Right. And so he goes, okay, that's my cover story. So then he, once they help him back, runs out to go meet Kitty because he's totally late to meet her. Yeah, now he's totally late for this dinner that he was going to to begin with, right? He gets in huge trouble for being late. He apologizes profusely to her. And then he hears this loudmouthed dude telling a story about how he saw this crazy drunk guy talking to nobody that was there. <laughs> And Pansy starts sweating a little bit. The guy telling the story is this kind of big dude with a big red mustache. He sees Pansy and Pansy sees him and they make eye contact. The guy kind of look goes, oh, crap, that's the crazy guy. And he just sort of downplays the story not to blow Pansy's cover and just whatever. But also he's kind of mad later because he was going to tell this awesome story and then he had to pretend, oh, I don't remember what I would forget. It turned into this awkward. (laughs) Right. But this guy, this is Dr. Heatherly. This is yes. how we get introduced to Dr. Heatherly. He's the one telling the story. And that brings us, boom, back around. So this is how they meet. Pansy finishes his dinner with Kitty, and then he goes outside. And the doc follows him and asks him, what the heck is up? What were you doing being drunk, and now you're here, and what's happening? Pansy's just like, look, right there. And he points at the rickshaw. But, of course, doctor doesn't see it. He says, yeah, I've been seeing this phantom rickshaw. I've got a problem. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> right. So he, he thinks, well, maybe you've got the DTs or it's your eyes. I have noticed you, you haven't been drinking. So I'm thinking it's probably your eyes. Now your eyes are connected to your stomach and your stomach is connected to your brain. He's got a whole eyes, brain, stomach uh, theory. Theory that goes on. And he says, you know what? I'm going to help you out. You come back with me. I'm a doc. I'm going to help you. Which, so that's an awesome doctor, right? Right. This is where I think that story in the beginning plays in. Exactly. Because the Englishman... You get the the sense when he had this guest who was supposed to be there for two days, he then disrupted his household for weeks. Kind of didn't like him. He was mad at him about it. But then it, he felt responsible for him. And I think that's what happened here. Yeah. Heatherly feels responsible for him, even though he thinks he's kind of a nutcase. Yeah. He, so he moves in with him for a week. The doc's prescription is basically liver pills, cold water baths, and a bunch of exercise. Sounds good. And the end of the week, feels better. He arranges to see Kitty. He's feeling great, super happy. He's walking on sunshine. It's awesome. He sees Kitty. They go off for a ride together. Everything is kicking ass. He thinks he's over his malady. And of course, boom, rickshaw. (laughs) It's there. Then the next thing he knows, (laughs) he's on the ground. Yeah, he kind of blacks down. He falls off the horse. He has this real manic episode here that dooms his relationship with Kitty because... Well, she's crying when he comes to. She's over him crying and then he grabs her and he says, look at this rickshaw. It's right there. And he drags her out into the street and he's like pointing at it and just starts ranting about everything that happened. Now, apparently she is not aware of this relationship that he had with Mrs. Wessington. No. She's aware of who Mrs. Wessington is. Uh-huh. But she did not know they had an affair. Or yeah. at least she didn't know how far it went, or I don't know. But her eyes blaze. She says, that's quite enough. And he tries to stop her from going. She whips him across the face with her crop. 
yeah. cuts his face open. That's how she beats his ass. And then luckily Dr. Heatherly comes along and sees this, saves him, you know, yeah. while he's bleeding in the street. But that's the real guilt of it there. I mean, he's just hearing what he did to Mrs. Wessington and rage is Kitty and she breaks everything off. Now, at this point, Kitty sends back all of his letters. The doc takes the initiative and just burns them because he knows that this isn't going to work. And the doc says, OK, yeah. look, I, I'm going to level with you. If you're going to save your reputation at all, you got two two ways of going about this. One, you're an alcoholic, basically, yeah. and you have you the, the DTs, DTs, or you're having fits. It's up to you. What do you want me to tell people? Because <laughs> we got to tell people something. And he goes, fits. Yeah, give him fits. So he does. What's kind of funny after this is when he finally ventures out back into the city and in, in civilization, people are really nice to him. Mm-hmm. because they think he's a nut job. And he knows it too. It's that it's really kind of um where this story approaches a commentary or insight into insanity and hallucination as well. I feel really bad for him because he's town crazy and he's aware of it. Yeah. So he indulges it actually and when the rickshaw comes around, he starts walking around with it. He goes to Agnes who's mm-hmm. in the rickshaw and he just says, "Look, why are you doing this to me? Like do did I really deserve all of this punishment?" And she says, we don't know what she says. This is a really creepy part. He says, what we said during the course of that weird interview, I cannot, indeed, I dare not tell. It was a ghastly and yet in some indefinable way, a marvelously dear experience. Whoa, what What could she have said? I was a little disappointed, I have to say, because I was like, I was riveted and I was like, oh, why is she doing this? Because does a punishment really fit the crime? No, as far as we understand it. But yeah, there is there more. Well, that that's when it becomes that's where the ending comes into play, I think. So he starts just wandering around every day with the rickshaw. It kind of becomes his life. And he even feels that's more real than the people around him. Yeah, he says they're all like ghosts. The rickshaw's real, and he sees Kitty, and she's got some new guy that she's flirting with. She doesn't acknowledge him. It's like a phantom to him. It doesn't even seem real. Shall I die in my bed decently, as an English gentleman should die? Or in one last walk on the mall, will my soul be wrenched from me to take its place forever and ever by the side of that ghastly phantasm? Shall I return to my old lost allegiance in the next world? Or shall I meet Agnes, loathing her and bound to her side through all eternity? Shall we two hover over the scene of our lives till the end of time? As the day of my death draws nearer, the intense horror that all living flesh feels towards escaped spirits from beyond the grave grows more and more powerful. It is an awful thing to go down quick among the dead with scarcely one half of your life completed. It is a thousand times more awful to wait as I do in your midst, for I know not what unimaginable terror. Pity me at least on the score of my delusion, for I know you will never believe what I have written here. Yet as surely as ever a man was done to death by the powers of darkness, I am that man. Injustice to pity her. For as surely as ever woman was killed by man, I killed Mrs. Wessington. And the last portion of my punishment is ever now upon me. That's the end of the story. Stan, do you think that he literally killed her? No. Yeah, I think just his his bad behavior, because the way that he phrases that, it, it says, you know, he didn't go 
look, I actually killed her. He says, yeah. <laughs> if a man ever killed a woman, I basically did the same. There's an earlier portion of the story where he says, what was I supposed to do? I just, I, I can't, I can't just love her. If I don't love her, I don't. Of course. But the fact that he got involved with her when he shouldn't have, that was the mistake, obviously. Yeah. But she's got to take some responsibility for it, too, because she was married and she she's the one that made the vow, not not him. Takes two to tango, buddy. But now, even if she's a weak woman or maybe she wasn't very bright, maybe I don't know what was going on with her and why he feels guilty for doing this, why he's taking all the responsibility for this relationship that existed. Well, nothing said about what happened with her marriage. So, it, you know, it's suggested perhaps it says she was willing to do a lot for him. Did she leave her husband? And then he's like, I don't like you. And then she's like, uh, yeah, I now have no position in society or ways to fund myself. I mean, maybe the reason that she's growing pale and sick is because she's starving to death. Well, she still can afford guys to pull her around in a rickshaw for crying out loud. She might have cast a spell on them or something. Like that. <laughs> I have no answer for that. You're right. She's probably still well to do. But did she destroy her entire life for him only to be cast off? We don't know. Yeah. There you go. I think this was a, a really a great one from Kipling. I liked it better yeah. than Mark of the Beast, but you like Mark of the Beast better. They're very different stories, and they yeah. make me think about very different things. Mark of the Beast had a lot of insight into the human condition. This story, it's almost like, this sounds odd, but it's almost like expressing the emotions of somebody who got a divorce and, and has children. Like, I made a mistake with this person because we were in love. Now I hate them, but they're going to be in my life forever. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, I will always have to go around with this person, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and it's that's a totally different set of things to kind of discuss. So, all yeah, right. Well, anyway, next week of August, the return of Phantasma, we're going to do the Canterville Ghost by Oscar Wilde. Yeah, we haven't done any Wilde on the show before. That story, uh, HPL talks about Wilde in supernatural horror and literature lots of times, but not that story in particular. Uh, it's referenced in the notes of the annotated one because you know how. Lovecraft thinks humor doesn't really have any place in weird fiction. Right. Or in the horror tale. Canterville Ghost is a pretty funny story, I believe. It's longer, so it might take us a couple episodes to get through it, but I'm looking forward to uh, having some laughs. I want to thank our reader once again, Jeff C. Carter. Thank you so much for doing this. You did a great job. Thank you so much for reading. And I want to thank our advertisers again. The Stars Were Right by K.M. Alexander. We're linking out to it in our show notes. It's a cool Lovecraftian urban fantasy thriller, and it's available for sale. Sequel's coming out soon, so please go pick it up. And also, remember, folks, to check out Kickstarter for the Cthulhu Talking Board. We're going to link out to it in our show notes. It's a beautiful Cthulhu-themed uh, Ouija board. It's amazing. You must participate in this thing. I, I know I'm going to. That is all we have for this week. I am Chris Lackey. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And you've been listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com.